and welcome to the Archbishop's Corner. This is where we meet each week to talk with Hartford Archbishop Leonard Blair about faith, morals, the life of the church today, and how the gospel makes sense in an ever-changing world. This is where we go to find the answers to our lingering questions about the teachings of the church, living the faith life of a Catholic in contemporary society, and developing a stronger relationship with God. I'm Father John Gatzak, with many questions that you and I will ask Archbishop Blair as he responds to what matters to you in the Archbishop's Corner. You'll never have a problem-free life, ever. You'll never drift off to sleep on the wings of this thought, my today came and went with no problems in the world. This headline will never appear in the paper. We have only good news to report. Now, you might be elected as president of Russia. You might discover a way to email pizza and become a billionaire. You might be called out of the stands to pinch hit when your team is down to its final out of the World Series, hit a home run, and have your face appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It's not likely, but it's possible. But a problem-free, no-hassle, blue-sky existence of smooth sailing? Uh Uh-uh, don't hold your breath. Problems happen. They happen to rich people, sexy people, educated people, sophisticated people. They happen to retired people, single people, spiritual people, and secular people. But not all people see problems the same way. Some people are overcome by problems. Others overcome problems. Some people are left bitter. Others are left better. Some people face their challenges with fear. Others with faith. You don't have a choice about having problems, but you do have a choice about what you do with them. Choose faith. In the Archbishop's Corner is where Archbishop Blair offers advice that will help us choose faith in answer to the challenge of any problem. So thank you, Archbishop Blair, for inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner, where your invaluable advice encourages faith in answer to life's overwhelming problems. How are you? Invaluable? Invaluable? Well, what would you call it? Well, I hope it would be helpful. To the extent that there are many people that would receive that type of help, and maybe in critical situations— they might well if you want to it might if be if you want to flatter me by saying it's invaluable i'll accept that i always want to flatter my archbishop so so in in terms of, of flattering let me ask you this question because this is something that that has been in the news and i'd like to get your take on it lawmakers in california and australia have recently reacted to reports of molestation and other kinds of abuse by proposing laws requiring priests to report to authorities anything they hear during the Sacrament of Reconciliation that pertains to abuse. Now, they are already required to report abuse, just like any other professional who's in health care or teachers, for instance, but the seal of the confessional has always been protected by law. And recently, Pope Francis authorized the Vatican to reaffirm the inviolability of the seal of the confession. He authorized the release of a statement saying that any political or legislative attempts to force priests to reveal what is said in the confessional is a violation of religious freedom. This means, the Pope says, that priests can never be forced to reveal what they learn in the sacrament of reconciliation. The Pope's note goes so far as to declare that priests should therefore defend the seal of confession even to the point of shedding blood, both as an act of loyalty to the penitent and as witness to the unique and universal salvation of Christ in the Church. Your thoughts on this, Archbishop? Well, I have to say that it is a a very um, difficult situation, only in this sense, that if I were hearing confessions and someone told me this, I would do everything in my power to counsel them, to urge them, uh, you know, to to, uh, seek help, to end this, etc. But it is true that the sacrament of 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 penance, the confessional, has, has to be inviolate. And, you know, it was even, uh, as you mentioned, it's been recognized in law everywhere. 
And we all know that what we're talking about here, where there would ever even be a question of revealing it to the civil authorities, always has to do with crimes and serious things. Mm -hmm. But there was a respect for this, that, that this is so sacred that that cannot be revealed. And as I say, the priest has to do, I would feel obliged to do everything I can to get the penitent to, to do the right thing, you know, and certainly to absolutely decease and desist, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, I, I, this is a very solemn thing that we cannot break. And so in the past, you know, uh, priests have gone to jail or even been killed rather than reveal the sacrament uh, of penance, what a penitent has confessed. And so we would just have to pay the consequences if we were put in this kind of situation. I believe it's St. John the Pomacene, who is the great uh, patron of, of uh, the Seal of Confession, you know, and uh, he died in 1393 uh, in Bohemia, the Czech Republic. He was drowned in the Vitava River at the behest of Wenceslaus, not St. Wenceslaus, but another Wenceslaus, King of the Romans and King of Bohemia. Later accounts say that he was the confessor of the Queen of Bohemia and refused to divulge the secrets of the confessional. So he's considered the first martyr of the Seal of Confession. And so uh, I know in the cathedral there, uh, there is a, uh, an altar to him, a shrine, but uh, no, we can't, we cannot divulge. Certainly, we would have never thought that this would be possible in, in, in our current modern society, that a priest would be forced to reveal what he learns within the confessional. Yes, and I mean, certainly everyone, including us, abhors to, uh, that somebody would do this kind of sin and crime of sexual abuse. But when it comes to the confessional, we apply all the spiritual remedies we can for accountability and reparation and conversion, but we cannot uh, reveal uh, these kinds of things. It's simply not possible. And as the Pope says, a priest should defend the seal of confession even to the point of shedding his own blood. In yes, we have to. It's a sacred, it's a very sacred thing. Absolutely. All right, Archbishop, moving on, uh, another question for you. The Office of Education, Evangelization, and Catechesis was recently unable to locate an administrator to replace Dr. Michael Griffin, who finished his term as superintendent of schools this summer. Now, a letter from Sister Mary Grace Walsh, who is provost for education, evangelization, and catechesis, says there is, and I quote, there is a shortage of qualified individuals to serve in the higher leadership positions in Catholic education, end quote, and that two other archdioceses also have recently been unable to find a superintendent for their schools. Tell us how the, the office is being restructured then to serve students in this coming year. Well, I haven't seen the text of what uh, Sister Mary Grace wrote, but certainly I've been party with her of the conversations about this and coming to a conclusion. Mm -hmm. And I would say there are two aspects of it. Yes, one of them is that uh, to get the kind of professional uh, administrators uh, we need, and by the way, I want to thank and congratulate Dr. Griffin on his retirement for his service uh, to Catholic education, Catholic schools, and being superintendent. Uh, but there is more of a difficulty in finding um, people who are properly trained, uh, have the experience, and are willing applying for the, the position. The, the other complement to that is that as we look at the structuring of the archdiocese, uh, we find that there are ways to, to uh, not just adequately, but to uh, move forward in a really good way by restructuring ourselves. Even a, uh, And so this is not just a stopgap because we couldn't find a, a, a suitable uh, replacement. 
uh, for Dr. Griffin, but it also commends itself even just from the point of view of, of, of our existing structure that I think the way Sister Mary Grace will function with her department and the people under her, I am uh, quite uh, confident that our schools will be well served uh, in the Archdiocese. And, you know, another thing I might mention that when you, you know, I talk about that there aren't as many people to serve in those jobs or willing to, to apply for them or have the necessary background, but you have to remember, too, that uh, the Catholic schools in a diocese like Hartford are, are are not what they were. You know, I, I pointed out that startling statistic when we did pastoral planning that in 50 years, there are 80% fewer students in the Catholic schools of this archdiocese than there once were. So when you talk about the structure for administering our schools and for kind of shepherding, shepherding them, if you will, you know, we also have a reduced uh, need there as well. It's not as vast uh, a responsibility as it once was. Um, so all of those factors come together, and I'm very satisfied, confident that uh, this new configuration uh, will will serve our schools, uh, their parents and children, pastors very well. Does it frighten you that uh, within 50 years there's been an 80% decrease in the number of students attending our Catholic schools? Well, it's a commentary on many things. I don't know that I'd use the word frighten, but it it is the reality of today that we don't have uh, uh, the Catholic families that we once had with the number of children. They simply are not there. And this is not just for the Catholic schools, but it's for the public schools as well, mm-hmm. uh, at least in Connecticut. Demographically, uh, this is a difficulty. I will say, too, and it's a challenge for us. It's a challenge for uh, the school system, public school system. And I dare say it's a challenge to the country because when you have that kind of demographic decline, if it were not for more recent immigrants that still have larger families, uh, we would have significant challenges demographically in the United States, much as uh, Europe does, you know, where uh, they're entering into, by their own admission, demographic winter. They do not, they're not going to be able to replace their own populations. Well, that brings us to the much larger topic, you know, of, uh, of, of um, church teaching about life and about family and about having children, etc. But the other factor that came up with um, pastoral planning was we saw uh, that they, you know, they did a very uh, detailed uh, demographic profile of the three counties of the archdiocese down to the level of, of blocks, you know, like city blocks or little uh, segments. Yeah. And it was very clear that where there are more young children today, we do not have Catholic schools. And where they, we used to have, where we still have Catholic schools, those areas, for the most part, no longer have a lot of children of that age. In other words, we still reflect the demographics. Our buildings reflect the demographics of 50 or, or 80 years ago. And we, we don't, and of course, you might say, well, why don't we just put schools where the young children are? Well, this is a hugely expensive proposition now to do. And even where there are more young children, there aren't uh, necessarily that many to create a school. You know, I think uh, Sister Mary Grace has said that that ideally uh, a school should have, an elementary school should have about 200 students to really uh, be on a solid footing. Uh, Many of our schools today now are down to 160, 130, some even less. And the parishes and uh, the archdiocese tries to help to, to make a go of it. But this is the reality today. So we have to monitor it very carefully, be very responsible about uh, administration of schools and have to do everything we can to encourage uh, our parents uh, to send their children. Thank you for that explanation. Let's move on now and talk a little bit about some of the celebrations that are going to be occurring this week. 
For instance, tomorrow we observe the feast day of St. Mary Magdalene. Now, except for the mother of Jesus, few women are more honored in the Bible than Mary Magdalene. She's known as the Apostle to the Apostles. From what we know of the life of Mary Magdalene, Archbishop, what does her example bring to our faith? What does her example tell us about faith today? Well, Mary Magdalene uh, is a story of uh, conversion, you know, of someone whose life was utterly transformed by an encounter with Jesus, and uh, also uh, an example of someone who had such uh, utter devoted adherence to the person of Christ, you know, and I, I think when we think of our faith so often people reduce it to ideas in a book or information or just doctrines as important as those are but the reality is that this personal encounter with Christ and personal relationship with Christ which our evangelical brothers and sisters remind us of constantly it is absolutely true you know I mean yeah. I I've, I've heard these these very troubling statistics that even church-going Catholics when they're surveyed very few of them uh, well, I shouldn't say very few, but a significant number of them do not believe that they have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus is a living person risen from the dead, flesh and blood, transfigured, resurrected, but nevertheless, he's not an idea floating around, and he's not some inhuman uh, being. Uh, I mean, he's true God and true man, and Jesus is, is real as, a, as an individual. And so even for crossing the chasm between the material world and the heavenly, which will one day be bridged completely, we have to have this relationship to him. Anybody that reads the Gospels knows this because he tells it to us. And through faith, this, this can happen. So Mary Magdalene is the, uh, an example, a uh, beautiful example of this, uh, I would call it devoted adherence to the person of Christ. And speaking of relationships and those people that have a relationship with Christ, Thursday we celebrate the feast day of St. James the Apostle, one of the favored three who had the privilege of witnessing the transfiguration, the raising to life of the daughter of Jairus, and the agony in Gethsemane. St. James has inspired an ardent devotion that has drawn millions from all corners of the earth to his great shrine in Spain. Why do you think this is, especially when there's so little known about James, little that he's said in the scriptures? Yes, well, James has a very prominent position there among the Twelve, James the Greater, because there's two James, and this would be James the Greater, and this uh, a key role he played in the in the early church in Jerusalem, and uh, then the whole tradition of uh, of his body uh, winding up in Spain, and I think it just developed through that great shrine, mm -hmm. and through the pilgrimages, and through the prayers that were offered there, and the signs that were given there, that James became a kind of a magnet of devotion. So I've been to that shrine a couple times myself in Galicia, in northwest Spain, a beautiful area. And uh, it's, and of course, the famous Camino, the famous pilgrim way that people to this day, movies have been made about it. And, and uh, I know a number of people who've made that walk. Of course, people used to come from all over Europe uh, to, uh, to uh, make the shrine, uh, pilgrimage to the shrine of St. James. I remember one of the columns, the pillars uh, in, in Paris from the, I believe from the Middle Ages, was the beginning of the pilgrim way from Paris to Santiago de Compostela. Like anything devotional, it's meant to be a pilgrimage of faith, a prayer, of conversion, and uh, I think that's a beautiful and good thing. Under the inspiration of James the Apostle. 
Yes. Archbishop, let's take a look now at the road to happiness in life, and this is where we examine the wisdom of Pope Francis, drawn from some of his writings. I'll read a short portion of the Holy Father's address, and then we'll ask you to comment with your own thoughts. This is taken from Pope Francis's Angelus, delivered on December 14th of 2014, and it's called, Be a Missionary of Joy Even in Times of Stress. The Pope says, St. Paul, in his letter to the Thessalonians, describes what it takes to be missionaries of joy. We need to pray constantly, always give thanks to God, listen to His Spirit, seek out good, and avoid evil. If this becomes our lifestyle, then the good news will be able to enter many homes and help people and families rediscover that salvation lies in Jesus. In Him, it is possible to find inner peace and the strength to face life every day, even at its heaviest and most difficult. No one has ever heard of a sad saint with a mournful face. This is unheard of. It would be a contradiction. A Christian's heart is filled with peace because he knows how to place his joy in the Lord even when going through difficult times. To have faith does not mean you never have difficult moments. It means you have the strength to face those moments because you know that you are not alone. This is the peace that God gives to his children. Archbishop, your thoughts? Yes, well, to be a missionary of joy, uh, you know, the Pope has put a lot of emphasis on the joy of the gospel. And uh, it's true. We have a lot... Uh, to drag us down from joy uh, in the world today, and especially if you are a believing Catholic. There are many, many reasons to be uh, sad or, or dour about uh, the situation. But when you stop and think of it, it's always been that way. Even during Christ's own ministry, he was, you know, rejected by many people, plotted against by uh, the Pharisees and the scribes. He was so often disappointed at the slowness to believe and understand among his closest followers, the apostles. So there was all this constant, uh, the, the way, uh, when, when, when God enters the world, there's a lot of uh, disbelief and, and lack of understanding. And yet, you know, Jesus talked about joy, that the, a joy that the world cannot give and that the world cannot take away from those who believe. And uh, in the end, you know, again, that beautiful image that Pope Benedict once said, what is heaven like? Heaven is like being plunged into an infinite abyss of joy. I mean, that not that a beautiful image for eternity, to be plunged into an infinite abyss of joy, to be plunged into it, to enter mm -hmm. into joy. And uh, so we have to already be living our heavenly life here, even when outward circumstances are uh, very challenging. Jesus promised that he will give us a joy that this world cannot take from us. So I think that's true of the saints, and it has to be true of each one of us. And furthermore, the Pope says we missionaries of joy. In other words, it's not just for ourselves that we are joyful, but we, we bring this joy uh, into a world that really, really needs that kind of message and that kind of witness. It seems like he's also saying that the key to this joy is the need to pray constantly, always give thanks to God, listen to his spirit, seek out good, and avoid evil. Um, it, 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 it's almost like that's the key to joy. So here it is. Well, it brings us back to what we were saying earlier. It is about our personal relationship to Jesus Christ. I mean, remember what Jesus said, that the Father and he will come and make their dwelling within us. You know, we, we don't, and, and when we receive Holy Communion, you know, to re, we have received Christ within our very bodies and souls, our minds and spirits. God is not, and Jesus are not objects or personages outside of ourselves somewhere in a distant heaven but they are rather very close mm. to us. They are the, the part, part, and again, it's that Trinitarian thing through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that this is this is the life where what does Saint Paul says? I live now, oh, not I, but Christ lives in me. Well, that's that's all part of this great mystery that we have to be attentive to and prayerful about when it, in faith. Well, before we get to some of the questions submitted by our WJMJ listeners, let's take a look now at our gospel reading on the 16th Sunday in Ordinary Time, the 21st day of July. Today's reading is from Luke's Gospel, the 10th chapter. And after this gospel is dramatically presented, we'll talk with you, Archbishop, for your thoughts. Now, as they went on their way, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha received him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is needful. Mary has chosen the good portion, which shall not be taken away from her. Archbishop, what do you think about the significance of this gospel in our lives today? Well, first of all, I would just note that it harkens back to our earlier conversation about the personal relationship with Christ, Mm. how Martha and Mary uh, were friends of Jesus, followers of Jesus, and Jesus uh, went to people's homes a lot. He visited with them. He had a circle of people that he was close to. So his sacred humanity was very human, and these two were privileged to be in that circle by their faith and devotion to him. And traditionally, this gospel Uh, has been used to illustrate the difference between the active and contemplative life, that somehow Martha uh, represents with her serving the more active things we do, and Mary, at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, uh, uh, represents uh, more the contemplative life. And of course, there is a validity to that, uh, very much so, but I do think that in uh, all of our lives, uh, particularly if we're, we're living in the world, uh, we're not, you know, contemplative sisters or, or brothers. That doesn't mean that both don't apply to us as well. Yes, we are busy about many things like Martha, but we also have to take time like Mary to sit at the feet of the Lord and listen to him speak. And Jesus says that that really is the better part and it will not be taken from us. So we have to, all of us have to be contemplatives in some way. We have to make a space and within ourselves within of recollection within the apex of our souls to be, to listen to what Jesus wants to say to us. And that is a prayer. Prayer is not just about saying words. It is about recollecting ourselves and trying to focus uh, on inviting the Lord to speak to our hearts. Martha stands for those who, who work at religion. They visit the sick. They feed the hungry. They give and they raise money to benefit the poor. They teach a religious ed class in church, for instance. They're activists. So Jesus, in saying that Mary had chosen the better part as she sat at his feet, isn't saying that all these works of charity are not important. What he, what he is saying, I guess, is, is that the way to make sure that those works of charity arise from the right motives is to spend time with Jesus. Would you agree? Yes. Yes, and in the end, he's saying the important thing, the, the, the thing that's most important is our relationship to him. And of course, if we have this relationship to him, we will do all those good active things to the extent that our circumstances and state of life permit. But we cannot sacrifice what Jesus says is the, is the need of the only one thing not to be taken from us, and that is to listen to him speak. Let's look at a question from Linda from Glastonbury. Linda says, must every Christian have a sense of mission? I'm guilty of being too busy with my job and other activities to care much about what others are doing around me. Is spreading the good news to others something I should be doing? 
Oh, absolutely. And yes, it is uh, integral to being uh, uh, baptized because Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to bear witness to him and to bring others to him. And it is the highest form of charity because, you know, as essential as the corporal works of mercy are, the greatest gift you can give to another person, the greatest help you can give to them, is to greatest favor you can do for them is somehow to lead them to faith in Christ and membership in the church, to receive the sacraments, etc., to live that life in Christ. So, yes, uh, it's part and parcel. You know, when we're uh, baptized, when we're confirmed, even at the end of every Mass, we're sent forth to go out. Uh, yeah, a mission is, an, is part of what it means to be uh, a Christian. Tom from Orange says, I hear everywhere that there are more and more people who identify as agnostic or atheist. Do you have any thoughts on why this is so, and what is stopping people from following Jesus today? Well, we live in a very uh, secularized, materialistic world, wherefore, because of the advances uh, resulting from our God-given, God-given intelligence and reason, uh, we are able to uh, develop many uh, scientific uh, remedies for some of the suffering and dilemmas of life or its uh, burdens. So that leads to the temptation to people to think that they don't need God and that we, that man can resolve all the problems. And somehow that deferring to God is somehow a, a lessening of our human dignity or freedom or whatever. But nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I think, though, that... Uh, Today, you know, it's very, very sobering. Uh, we bishops have been told that young people now around the age of 13, by that age, are beginning to decide that they don't really believe in God and don't need religion. Mm -hmm. That's an amazing thing. It's a very troubling thing. But it's the reality uh, because they're surrounded by a world that's, that is not filled with God at all. And they may even have very good, devout parents. But we all know that parents and the family no longer are the principal uh, influencers at a certain point of uh, of people's experience of the world and how they perceive themselves. Uh, and so it's sad. Many of them are, are just saying that they have no religion, uh, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily anti-religious or they're not open to something. But then there are those two uh, that simply uh, say that they, they don't believe in God. Going to another question, Archbishop. Ron from Meriden says, it is my understanding that we should be cleansed of our sins before we receive communion. I do not regularly go to confession, but I go to Mass and receive the Eucharist every week. Is this okay? Well, strictly speaking, one is only obliged to go to confession if you're in a state of serious sin. But having said that, you know, what kind of faith or spirituality do we have if we only do the things that we're strictly obliged to do, oblig absolutely obligated to do? And it's very clear in the history of the church and the spirituality of the saints, that we should always be striving to overcome all of our imperfections, even our venial sins. Uh, and therefore, the sacrament of penance is offered as a very special grace to be able to do that, not just to forgive our sins, but to give us the grace to avoid sin and to do what is good. So, so no, if you're not in a state of mortal sin, you're not, strictly speaking, obliged to go to confession. But I think your spiritual life is diminished or impoverished to a certain degree if you don't avail yourself of this grace that's given in that sacrament. 
So maybe what we could say is that going to receive regular confession, receiving the sacrament of reconciliation on a regular basis, gives us the grace to be courageous to do the things not only that we should avoid, but especially to do the things we should be doing in order to exercise our Christian commitment to the works of charity, for instance. It is a grace, a gift given, a sacrament, an encounter with Christ. Archbishop, we've come to the end of our time together. Can you close our program with a prayer and a blessing? Lord, you have poured out your love for us uh, by your incarnation, your death and resurrection, and you continue to give yourself to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit in the sacraments and in our encounter with you in others. We pray that you, Lord, will help us always to keep the eyes uh, of our hearts and minds and souls open to your presence and will help us to grow in your grace in all things and in that way to come to know the joy that you alone can give, not the world, and to be missionaries of joy. And may Almighty God bless you all in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Archbishop, thank you so much for joining us and inviting us into the Archbishop's Corner. We wish you a uh, pleasant summer week. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Thank you.